This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Day. My name is uh, Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, and today I'm pleased and honored to be interviewing Professor Jonathan Boff of the University of Birmingham on behalf of New Books Network, the History Division. Professor Boff is the author of a number of well-received books, and on in particularly focusing on the Great War, the military aspects. Uh, the subject of our interview today is Professor Boff's new book, Hague's Enemy, Crown Prince Ruprecht and Germany's War on the Western Front. Professor Boff, what would you say is the primary thesis of your book? Charles, thank you very much indeed for uh, inviting me on. It's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk to you. What I tried to do with this book was to turn the Great War around. Certainly in the UK and maybe in the US as well, We tend to look at the First World War almost exclusively through British eyes. What I wanted to do with this book was to say, well, what does it look like if we look at it through German eyes? And so I took this fellow, Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, who was one of the most senior German generals of the First World War. He was in charge of about a million men, a bit more than a million men, uh, and really the the number one opponent of the British army the whole way through the, uh, the First World War from from late 1914 right until the end, until the armistice in, in November 1918. So to look at, at his diaries and his letters and his correspondence and to see how he perceived the war and whether that changes any of the perceptions that we might otherwise have about it. And what, what I found was that the, if you like, traditional British motif or, or rather the, the more recent British motif amongst academic historians anyway, which sees the outcome of the war as being determined primarily by improvements in British military skill and techniques uh, as they climbed a so-called learning curve during the course of the war. But that, although that, that explanation is, is necessary for victory, it's not sufficient. And that one also needs to take into account the fact that the German army had severe problems uh, of its own the whole way through, which undermined its war effort and indeed were a a very significant factor in bringing about uh, its own downfall. Would would you say that the comparison with uh, uh, Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig makes sense historically? Wouldn't a better point of comparison in terms of Crown Prince Ruprecht uh, would have been with, say, someone like uh, Rawlinson or Allenby or Plummer, etc. Yeah, that's a fair... Sorry, go on. Uh, one of uh, 
uh, Field Marshal Haig's uh, army commanders rather than Haig himself, who wore a couple of different hats. Uh, I suppose BEF commander in chief, British Army commander in chief, as it were, uh, yep. as well as being a theater commander. And in in terms of looking at the totality of the Western Front, meaning including the French and later on in 1918 mm. the Americans, uh, an army commander. Well, I mean, I take your point, but actually I think they are a good comparison uh, for this reason. Uh, and, and it is that actually the, the scale of Ruprecht's command, the, the span of his command in terms of the number of men he was commanding, he was an army, he, he commanded an army for the first half of the war, rather like Haig did, and then an army group in the second half of the war, again, very much like Haig did. There is, there is a difference, as you point out. Haig was a, a national contingent commander. He was the, the, he was the commander-in-chief of British forces on the Western Front and therefore negotiated as an equal uh, with his French allies, for example. Whereas Ruprecht, although he was the senior Bavarian on the Western Front and Bavaria was the second most important country making up the German Empire at this time, but Bavaria was a long way behind Prussia. Uh, and Bavaria was much more subordinate to Prussia than Britain was to France, for example. So he had a so Rupert had a symbolic political role, if you like, uh, and also he was interesting. Or one of the reasons that I found him interesting is because he's a royal, because he was a royal, and because he had, as a result of that royal status, significant input into or significant information about the political maneuverings that were going on within the German high command throughout the war, it enabled me in the book to explore some of those questions as well as just the tactical and operational questions that, that you'd, you'd get if you looked at, at an army commander such as Rawlinson. Actually, in, in that sense, um, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, actually, that came up to my mind just now, it's not part of the, my written questions. Uh, in peacetime, Bavaria had its own military establishment. There was a Bavarian army which was autonomous vis-a-vis uh, -vis the German-slash-Prussian army. Uh, that autonomy was supposed to disappear in once the moment that war was declared. Uh, did the Bavarian military establishment, the, meaning the Mar Bavarian Ministry of War, did that function at all during the war, or that just basically was amalgamated into the greater... Prussian-German uh, organization? No, as you say, the, the Bavarian army was <clears throat> was independent until, until the outbreak of war. It was funded by the Bavarian state. It swore an, an oath of loyalty to the Bavarian king. Uh, it was organized along the same lines as the, as the Prussian and other, German, uh, and other units of the German army. Uh, so that it would, when war came, if war came, it would fit seamlessly into the broader German army. But you're absolutely right; it was, it was, as it were, run independently uh, in uh, in peacetime. When war came along, when war came along, as you say, the constitutional situation was that the Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany became the overall supreme commander of all, commander in chief of all the German armies, uh, uh, and had. Uh, direct operational control over it, although, of course, he delegated that to, his chief, to the chiefs of the German general staff. Uh, but uh, the, 
so the, but the Bavarian Ministry of War did continue to function because it was still responsible for recruiting, financing, feeding, uh, and uh, out, outfitting the units of the Bavarian army, which were then fighting as part of the German of the, of the larger German force. Ruprecht, before the First World War, during peacetime, uh, was designated at, in the event of war as commander of the German Sixth Army which was a largely Bavarian force, although it did have some Prussian units in it as well. Uh, so he was already integrated into the, into the planning and into the command structure of the, of the broader German army, not just of the Bavarian army, uh, and took part in all their sort of, you know, conferences and, and wargaming and all that kind of stuff. So um, uh, let me ask you then, in terms of historiography, there in the book actually deals with two different uh, streams or um, literatures. One literature is the literature about the British Army, uh, and specifically the um, influence, negative and positive, at the beginning, I suppose, uh, positive and subsequently very negative and sort of been slouched off in the last 40 years of the Alan Clark uh, lion led by donkeys uh, imagery uh, this course being uh, a saying which no doubt probably he invented, Clark that is, uh, by allegedly a German officer that the British uh, BEF was uh, uh, the regular soldiers were uh, lions but they were led by officers in the high command who were donkeys. So there is that literature. Now there is in your book, however, you deal with another literature, historical literature which is what you would, you know, you don't use the term uh, excessive glorification of the German army yeah. and uh, what you feel is to be a excessive uh, praise of and sort of overlooking of uh, aspects of uh, dysfunctionality in the German army in the Great War. Can you go into a little bit of, uh, for the audience, the historical background of the literature for both? Sure. Well, uh, the lines led by donkeys line, as you say, Alan Clark in 1959 in his book, The Donkeys, uh, uh, attributed it to, to Max Hoffman, one of the, the main German uh, staff officers during the First World War. No one quite knows where the phrase eventually uh, originally came from, and no one actually managed to find the, uh, the quote from Hoffman, and, and there is a rather mischief mischievous comment from uh, Clark that he might have made it up. Actually, it goes back a really long way. It goes back, I found it in 1858 uh, in <laughs> debates in Parliament uh, in, the, in the aftermath of the Crimean War. The British have a very long tradition of thinking that their soldiers are brave boys, but their generals are idiots. Uh, and that came through in the Crimean War, and it came through in the Boer War, and it came through again in, in the First World War. And, uh, and developed through the historiography of the First World War partly with the influence of people like Winston Churchill and Lloyd George and the memoirs that they wrote in which they refought battles that they'd had with the generals during the war uh, and painted the, painted the generals as, as buffoons uh, or callous bunglers, which all sort of built up to a crescendo, I suppose, in around the 1960s when people like Clark were kicking against the generation above them uh, the old farts, as they saw it, who were who were blocking the you know the progress that that a modern Britain could be making. <coughs> Excuse me, and, and also as the uh, 
the left uh, in particular had started to monopolize stories of uh, the narratives of progressivism uh, in the in British politics <coughs> at that time uh, and this all sort of fed into uh, movies and play or plays and movies like Oh What a Lovely War would be the obvious 1960s uh, example <coughs> which enshrined this whole myth uh, that taken together with the fact that British schoolboys, school, school children from the early 1960s onwards uh, received their first and still do receive introduction to the First World War through the poetry of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, which very much or often paints the, the individual soldier as a victim rather than as a, as a responsible actor uh, in this war, <clears throat> combined to create this, this popular feeling, which is very, very strong in Britain, and frankly, has still been, you know, you can still see it in, in a large amount of the centenary commemorations that we've uh, been going through for the last four years. But about 30 or 40 years ago, a generation of academic historians came along and, and, and questioned this lions led by donkeys uh, motif. They went back to the archives, which, which were now open. They could go into the original records of the British Army and see you know, how it had done its business and how the way it had done its business changed over time. And the conclusion that they drew was that the lions led by donkeys motif was flawed, would be polite. Um, and that, in fact, a better, character, a better way to characterize the British Army of the First World War would be one that, despite, in the face of immense challenges, <clears throat> a whole new way of having to learn how to fight a whole new way of war and expand immensely, all in a very short space of time, off a very low base, that managed to climb a learning curve, or a series of learning curves, such that by 1918 the British Army was capable of taking on, fighting and defeating the German Army, which was, you know, had been the paradigm army uh, worldwide for the previous 50 years, the best, largely seen to be the best army in the world. So that's the sort of British context. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, slightly more recently, I think a few people, myself included, have started to cautiously revise aspects of this learning curve um, narrative. But we can talk about that later, perhaps. On the German side, it, it's a different story. And it's, I think, a very interesting one. <clears throat> what the, and it starts with the German army itself. The German army in the aftermath of the First World War had a problem. Well, it had two problems. One was that under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, signed in 1919, it couldn't be larger than 100,000 men, which, which was problematic for it when it felt itself surrounded, particularly and threatened by uh, France and by uh, Poland. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the problem that the German ar um, German uh, army faced was how on earth could, if we had to, how could we possibly defend ourselves against the French uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in another war and given that we're only going to have this tiny army and the solution they thought was to have a very highly skilled, very highly professional, uh, very mobile um, army which would be able to run rings around the larger heavier, slower French force now, 
I know this sounds very detailed, but just bear with me because there is a there is a sort of point to the to this. So so what they did was they went back and they constructed when they wrote the history of the First World War, which was largely written by German military officers or ex-military officers. They highlighted the bits from the First World War that fed into what they wanted the army to look like in the 1920s and the, and the early 1930s. Okay. Uh, so they, 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 they warped the narrative so that when they were teaching their officer cadets uh, and so on and so forth, that they could teach them, here's how you do it, uh, and then here's the evidence for that in the last war. Okay? And that then fed into, of course, the Nazi-era uh, German army, with some other bits added in, uh, and so created this idea again of the German army, of the 1930s being the best in the world. And the early victories against France and Poland in 1939, 1940, and even the, you know, the successes of the first months of Operation Barbarossa in 1941 against the Soviet Union, all seemed to bear out the fact that the Germans had come up with this remarkable military machine. Uh, now, obviously, the German army lost the Second World War just like they lost the First World War. But for Cold War, Cold War warriors wondering about how on earth could we think about stopping the Russians coming over the inter-German border in the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, all the way through to the 1980s, 1990s, uh, 1980s anyway. Well, the obvious place to go to get some experience about how to fight the Soviets was to go and talk to German, to, to German officers who'd done it. Uh, in, uh, in, in the Wehrmacht and the US Army grabbed and employed Halder the former chief of the German general staff under Hitler to write a whole series of history books effectively saying here's how to fight the Soviets if, you, if it comes down to it that's what they were essentially doing that so, so, so the American Army and therefore NATO uh, are already starting from the point of the German army having done things right because we're going to try and imitate them next time if we have to, right? in this particular context of the Cold War. And of course that only is, strength in re is only reinforced when the Federal Republic is formed uh, in from 1949 onwards and is rearmed in the mid-1950s. And of course the Bundeswehr, the German army, becomes one of the, the main partners within NATO that's going to be responsible for fighting uh, against, the, uh, against the Soviet Union. And, and inevitably, many of the officers and members of the uh, post-1956 German army had also been members of the pre-1945 German army. So there are an awful lot of good reasons, political Cold War reasons, why people think that the German army was crash hot. And it certainly fed through into a lot of particularly American military history, often written, in fact, by American army officers who served with the Bundeswehr in NATO uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. And it, so it's created this, this uh, story of the German army being politically, obviously, abhorrent under the Nazis and not much better under the German Empire before that but technically as a as a military instrument as being exceptionally skilled skillful and uh, and worthy of imitating now the obvious problem with that is that they lost 
both world wars. And so that, I suppose, was one of the thoughts that set me off on this whole track of if they were so exceptionally good, how come they lost as often as they did? Uh, and, and that's why one of the themes that I wanted to explore in this book. Now, I think the other, the other aspect is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of that, at least English language literature, um, maybe because it was not written by military historians, particularly you know, people who were teaching in academia and had doctorates, uh, mm-hmm. etc., they did not, again, correct me if I'm wrong, for the most part, used German language sources, and in particular, did not actually use any archival uh, sources. I think that's very true. There's one really big and really important exception, though, to what I just said, which is that Professor Sir Michael Howard, probably one of, one of, if not the leading military historian of the last 50 years, himself a combat veteran of the Second World War, he fought in Italy and won, uh, was decorated there, uh, for fighting there. In one of his books, he says, where's the effect of, I can't give you the exact quote, where's the effect of, I don't know how the Germans did it, but they always seem to be better than we were. <laughs> so there's someone who's not only studied war, but also experienced it directly against the Germans, uh, who, 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 who does think that they were always better. So, you know, you pay your money, you take your choice, I guess. In the case of uh, this book, I think you are the first historian, at least um, uh, historian writing the English language, who's used uh, Ruprecht's uh, papers, particularly his private diary. The uh, unabridged, I'm sorry, the um, uh, draft of the diary, because there was a published version, which I think you state in a couple occasions in the book, uh, was um, edited in terms of its published version for uh, an audience in terms of how he wanted to present himself. That's right. He wrote a pretty raw, unedited, largely unedited uh, manuscript diary, 4,197 pages uh, during the war. And then uh, 10 years later, in 1928, he edited that down into a three-volume published edition, um, which was published in the, as a result of some arguments that he was having with the guys who were writing the German official history uh, at the time. Um, historians have used that published diary quite a lot. Uh, I know of one, one military historian and one political historian who have, who have used the unpublished uh, diary and the letters, but they're both, both working in German rather than in, than in English. Uh, and so yes, I think I think I'm I'm maybe not the first to consult, but I'm certainly the first to use as thoroughly as I have done uh, these un- the handwritten sources as well as the published ones. That's right. Now, getting back to uh, Ruprecht and the Great War, how would you rate him in terms of uh, other German army commanders in terms of? Um, uh, talent. I know it's a rather vulgar exercise that person X is one, person Y is five. But oh. overall, how would you rate him compared to, say, Hoffmann when he was, uh, uh, after 1916, the head of um, the German Eastern Front Command, oh. etc.? It's a harder question than it seems because obviously, you know, what you're alluding to there is the there's, there's a difference between the chiefs of staff and the generals yes. that they support. 
Rupert was a general, Hoffman was a, a staff officer, not formally responsible for making these kind of decisions. But in practice, of course, you know, the two, the two roles bled into each other at different times and in different ways, depending in many cases on personality. I think, I don't think it's terribly easy to compare German officers with German officers. He was, Rupert was definitely better than the other royal prince who was in a comparable position to him, which was Crown Prince Wilhelm of Prussia, uh, who, he was the general who fought Verdun, for instance, also commanded an army group uh, on the Western Front uh, and was clearly an idiot uh, who had to have his hand very tightly held all the time uh, by his chief of staff. Uh, and Ruprecht, I don't think, did in the same way. Uh, he started off a little uncertain at the beginning of the war, leant heavily on his first chief of staff, who was a very you know, highly trained professional. Uh, but, but, but over the course of the war, I think, grows into his role considerably. But it would be silly, I think, to try and claim that Ruprecht was a new Napoleon or, or a new Alexander. You know, this was not the kind of war that was going to generate that kind of general, to be honest. This was as much a, a managerial uh, and example-setting kind of generalship as it was, or more of a, a managerial and example-setting kind of leadership uh, than a flashes of, of, of battlefield brilliance kind of, of, of generalship. However, I do think, you know, although, although as I say, the First World War was not, not one for, for Napoleons or Alexanders, it was a war which unstrung the reputations of an awful lot of generals and got them sent home. And Ruprecht didn't suffer that fate. He's clearly, he was clearly kept in post, partly for political reasons, let's be honest, but partly also because he was seen as being broadly competent, at least at his job. And, and indeed, of course, he was promoted rather than demoted. He went from commanding his army uh, to commanding an army group. And at one stage, there was even talk of giving him overall command of the whole of the Western Front uh, um, uh, in uh, 1916. 1917, which was not possible for political reasons because he couldn't have been, he couldn't have had a crown prince of Bavaria commanding a crown prince of Prussia. But, um, you know, so is he a 10? No. Uh, is he a 1? Definitely not. You know, he's in the sort of 6 to 7 kind of category, I think. I think he, I think he comes out of the war better than Ludendorff. Uh, for example, you know, who is his boss for the second half of the war. Um, as I say, he comes out better than Crown Prince Wilhelm. There are... Uh, what about uh, Mackinson? Well, I think Mackinson was fighting a very different kind of a war. I'm not sure that you know, he, he didn't have... He wasn't Sorry. fighting the main enemy in the main theater of operations, which is always going to be the hardest, the hardest thing to do. Mackinson was in many ways a genius, but he also had an easier job. Understood. Now, getting back to sort of the overall picture, uh, I believe twice in the book, once in the introduction, once in the conclusion, you state um, that, uh, in essence, by failing to win the war in late August, September 1914, mm. uh, Germany was more or less stuck. Was not going. The only chance yep. to win it was at that time, and that yep. everything else was at best uh, to hope for was a uh, compromise settlement uh, yep. at best. 
isn't that a little bit deterministic? I mean, uh, you could argue that it was really the decision for unrestricted warfare, which brings in the Americans in um, February to April 1917, which is really the, for lack of a better expression, game changer. That, yep. But that particular blunder, which of course is in, uh, one of many strategic or uh, political blunders that the Germans were making and going back mm-hmm. to um, the um, violation of Belgian neutrality. Uh, but that blunder, it could be argued that uh, the Germans were uh, at a very good chance of winning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think I'd see it rather differently, or maybe I can draw a slightly different distinction. I think that the decision for unrestricted submarine warfare was undoubtedly a huge strategic error by Germany. And, and it decided that they were going to lose the war. But I think the failure to uh, win on the Marne in August, September 1914 had already determined that they could not win it. If you see the, if you see the distinction I'm trying yes. to draw. Yes. Um, so, yes, I think the entry of America absolutely was a game changer. Um, uh, it, it enabled the war to carry on when it may not have done. I think it also intensified the determination on the part of all the Allies and Associated Powers that they were not going to come out of this war without something to show for it. So it reduced the chances of a compromise peace. You know, it's the thing about being slow to anger, slow to anger but terrible in anger, or whatever the phrase is that Americans like to, to, to <laughs> think of themselves as being uh, in wartime. Um, <clears throat> You know, there wasn't much scope for, once America was in the war, there wasn't any, there was certainly no further scope for uh, a compromise peace, in my opinion. Uh, certainly not along the kind of lines that the Germans wanted to, to impose one. But, but my own view, is, actually my own view, is, is that the Germans should never have fought the war in the first place because they could never win it. But, but, but I think that was, you know, you never quite know. There was still a chance that they might be able to win it up until their defeat on the Marne in September 1914. After that, there was no chance, and the entry of America just made absolutely 100% sure that they were going to lose it. Another um, uh, overall, in terms of the, the war military strategy, do you think that, uh, although you don't, you mention it, but you don't go into it in terms of uh, um, uh, the intricacies of it. Do you think that Falkenheim, in retrospect, made a strategic blunder by not shifting over entirely to the Eastern Front after the uh, November 1914? Well, he he did, um, didn't he? I mean, he spent 1915 essentially trying to trying to well, he trying to hold off the French and the British while while trying to knock Russia out of the war in 1915. Um, He was unable to do so, and that's why he realized that he had to come back to the Western Front in 1916 and came up with this greatly overcomplicated plan uh, centering on on Verdun. Um, So, so yes, I think he he blundered, but I think his his real blunder, or or at least Germany's real blunder, was actually in not listening to him when he said, listen, we're we're in trouble now. Uh, we need to either come up with a peace in the West or come up with a peace in the East. But but we can't fight a two-front war, which was pretty much his line throughout 1915 and, 19, and 1916. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the other members of the German high command were, were not prepared to listen. 
quite simply. So, you know, I think that was that was the blunder. I don't think there was. I don't think Russia could have been knocked out of the war in 19. Well, couldn't we know it couldn't be knocked out in 1915? I don't think. I don't think going east in 1916 necessarily would have made much difference either. You know, as as we've just been discussing, the war is actually decided in the West, uh, and it's decided uh, in 1917 and 1918. You know, post post U.S. entry, after in fact Russia has been knocked out of the war already. So uh, I, I, I think there's what changes is that there is a a, a level of misunderstanding in Germany about the determination of the Allies, I think. Um, by which I mean they, they underestimate how determined the Allies are to fight this thing to a successful conclusion. Uh, and that reduces the possibilities of any kind of compromise. And then on top of that, the Germans are unrealistic about the kind of compromises that will have to be made. Does uh, that make sense? Yes, yes it does. Thank you. Uh, going back to um, a purely military aspect, would you rate the Battle of the Somme, which you discuss a good deal in the book, as a British victory? No, I don't think you can see the Battle of the Somme as a, as a victory for anybody. <laughs> uh, uh, my supervisor, my PhD supervisor... Uh, Bill Philpott has written a book about the Somme called Bloody Victory in which he argues that it did sufficient damage to the German army that it can be seen as a victory for the British and the French. Uh, I must admit I'm not convinced. Clearly the Battle of the Somme came as a big shock to the German army. It, it taught them or it made them realize, first of all it did a lot of damage to the German army but it also made them realize that they were on the receiving end of an attritional war that was going to be very, very hard for them to, to, to survive. But that didn't stop them uh, putting up a very good performance the whole way through 1917 and through much of 1918. Uh, so I think you know, the, the Battle of the Somme, I think is, I am more sympathetic to the view that that this was one of the it, it was one of those battles that probably had to be fought but it shouldn't have been fought the way it was and it went on too long and it did cost many too many lives for any strategic effect that it had however that said what is clear and if you if you look back from the perspective of 1918 you can see that the german army has been considerably weakened by then and that's part of a process of which the Somme was a part, is what I'm saying. So in point of fact, you would not necessarily disagree with those historians who posit that the Battle of the Somme was maybe or is the first of the, quote, learning lessons, um, experiences that the BEF had to undergo. I think that's true, yes. The the the. the, the, the the BF learns a lot from, from the Battle of the Somme, undoubtedly. Um, most of it does, anyway. Um, you know, but the French have already been learning those lessons for a year. The British are, are at least six months to a year behind the, um, behind the French in their, in their learning at this point, and, and indeed later. Uh, but, but I think, you know, to justify the, the Somme purely on the basis of learning the lessons is kind of like justifying your teenage daughter 
having lots of car crashes because that'll help her pass her, her, her driving test. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> very apt. Uh, you actually go into something which you mention in the book, which is that uh, looking at the war, as it were, through Ruprich's eyes, you come to a very different picture of uh, how um, the Western powers on on the ground and their armies were viewed, that in point of fact, um, it was the French which loomed larger as a military force over the BEF. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yes, I mean, I think, again, the Anglo-centric historiography will you know, you'd hardly know the French were even there on the Western Front. But of course, you know, the, the, the French bore the main burden, certainly for the first two years of the war, if not, if not more. Um, and that comes through very strongly in the book. Uh, not only is it, are most of the battles that Ruprecht is fighting against the French rather than the British, the British are always a bit of an, after, an afternote um, in, in his accounts of these battles. But also... Uh, he's scared of the French in a way that he is not scared by the British. He thinks that the French infantry are more effective, their artillery is more effective, they work together better. Um, they have, as he sees it, deeper pockets, they've got more, got more resources. So, so right to the end of the war, actually, he's arguing that it's the French who are the real military threat <clears throat> that has to be faced. Uh, and I think you can see that in the decision that the Germans make in spring 1918, that Ludendorff makes in spring 1918 for his uh, Kaiser battle uh, offensive on the one, Operation Michael, which began on the 21st of March, where the, where the, the aim, the objective is to, <clears throat> or the target, I should say, is the BEF. And he targets the BEF rather than the French for the first of these big offensives that he thinks is going to win the war, but for two reasons. One is that he believes that the British are militarily weaker than the French. And the second one is that he thinks that the British are politically the center of gravity of the, of the alliance against Germany. So he, if he knocks Britain out of, the fr- out of the war, then he will almost certainly, France will follow suit, whereas he doesn't necessarily feel that the opposite is true. Um, so it's a political decision, but also a military decision. And the fact that even by March 1918, the Germans are seeing the, the British as militarily the weaker of the two, I think is evidence for the fact that however much learning the British have done, they have still not caught up yet with the, um, with the French. There's another piece of evidence, I think, to this as well, which is, <clears throat> and this is a bit more tendentious perhaps, and I didn't put it in the book, but, but it is that in the 1920s and 1930s, if you were a relatively small country, Czechoslovakia, for, for example, that wanted, or Poland even, that wanted to build an army, you didn't go to Britain to ask them how you built an army. You might go to them to ask how you build a navy, but you didn't go to Britain to find out how to build an army. You went to France. France was seen as the dominant army worldwide, actually, as a result of its, of its victories in the First World War. And that was the sort of, that set the paradigm uh, for a bit, for everyone, of course, apart from the Nazis. Actually, that will, um, that reflection causes me, we can go a little bit later on, um, to, um, about discussion about the hundred, what is called the hundred days. 
Yeah. Before we get to that, going back to Operation Michael, um, mm. it's tr- isn't it true in terms of uh, Ruprecht's own view? And in this, he was echoing a couple of other people like uh, Hoffman yeah. and on the opposite side, Haig, who, mm. who all three did not think that it was perhaps the best idea to have this huge... Uh, Schlieffen type of offensive in which you have an annihilating battle. Um, I think in, isn't it true in the case of, uh, Crown Prince Ruprecht that he actually, uh, advocated at one point a, uh, bringing over men and material for, uh, uh, an offensive in northern Italy? Mm-hmm. Well, he, uh, to be honest, I mean, I've gone through all the planning papers for, for Operation Michael. Which, the planning for which went on for about six months, and they're going backwards and forwards arguing this option and that option and so on until your eyes bleed, to be honest. Um, one, I, I, th- I think a, 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 better con- a better way to frame this is to say that Ruprecht and others thought that any attempt at a knockout blow was unlikely to succeed by 1918. And certainly that was the evidence of the war up until then, after all. That, they, that Germany had to be prepared for a series of major offensives, none of which on their own was likely to, to win the war, but which cumulatively might have that effect. Now, Ruprecht, by this stage of the war, is coming and going. He's blowing very hot and cold about whether Germany can still win. Uh, most of the time, a lot of the time he thinks that they can't, but he has these sort of flashes of optimism uh, from time to time. So it's hard at any given time really to, to nail down precisely what his view really is. But but you're right. You know, there were a lot of people that felt in, uh, uh, in similar ways that there had to be better alternatives to the plan that Ludendorff comes up with. The other, the other criticism that Ruprecht made of Ludendorff's plan, it's a famous one, is that um, there was no strategic objective to Ludendorff's plan, that, that all Ludendorff was concentrating on was how to create the breakthrough in the enemy line without having given any thought to, to you know, where to go next. And, and I think you know, there's, there's some fairness to that criticism. There's also some fairness to Ludendorff's defense, which is, well, if we don't break through the enemy line, then there's nothing we can do anyway, so who cares? Um, which is, you know, has some force to it. But I think, you know, the, for me, the, the, the armchair general within me, I suppose we've all got one a little bit, um, feels that this was a, that the Operation Michael, the spring offenses were, were very poorly planned because, of, and were never going to succeed because uh, Ludendorff had not properly calculated what he could reasonably achieve with the resources at his uh, at his command, and then calibrated his objectives to fit those resources into some kind of meaningful way. Uh, and therefore, he could never achieve his objectives because he didn't know what those objectives were. You see what I mean? So you would not agree with uh, David Stevenson, who, in I think it's his book, Backs to the Wall. Characterized uh, Operation Michael as uh, quote a masterpiece of staff work unquote. Oh, I think in technical terms, it was in very impressive. I mean, it was a masterpiece of staff work in the sense that managing to concentrate that number of men and all the kit that they required and so on and so forth and still achieve some level of tactical surprise was 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 a, that was a miracle of staff work. Yeah, no question. 
but 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 it but it was all to no end, right? Because they didn't really know where they were going or what they were going to do with it. And the idea that that it was likely to win the war, uh, I think, was a over optimistic, and b uh, well, it was it was over optimistic and. Uh, and unrealistic, um, frankly, at this stage. I think it's very hard to see almost any event, with the possible exception of, of Paris, the fall of Paris, really having a major impact on the determination to carry on fighting of any of the major combatants on the Allied side. Um, uh, certainly the kind of blow that the Germans were likely to be able to pull off was not going to be enough. And I think Ludendorff and Co. should have realized that by this stage. In fact, I, I have a suspicion, and it's no more than a suspicion because it, it is unprovable. There is, no, there is no evidence for it. There could be no evidence for it. But I have a suspicion that Ludendorff himself actually kind of knew that. But he was more scared of admitting that he'd been defeated than he was of trying to win, if you see what I'm saying. Yes. And which leads me to ask, in 1918, how much of a liability was Ludendorff for the Germans? Uh, I think he was a very, very serious problem. Um, you know, his his behavior, his, his his strategic judgment, as I've already suggested to you, was flawed. I think he he combines these moments of sort of political insight with with um, very poor operational uh, decision making. Uh, I think, and I think worse than that, he he sets an extremely poor example throughout the whole organisation by by his continual uh, micromanagement uh, the whole way down the system. He creates a sort of climate of fear that makes uh, the his subordinate commanders freeze uh, and then imitate him. In fact, because they're scared of the consequences of his anger. And uh, you know, and, and it creates a, a toxic atmosphere within the German uh, within the German command, uh, I think, which which undoubtedly contributes to uh, to German defeat. Now, um, in terms of the hundred days, first, can you explain to the audience what is meant by that? But my real question yeah. is, uh, there is a sort of um, odd dialectic. Uh, what is more important, the master stroke of um, uh, British tactics oh. and uh, operational skills which are shown during that period beginning in early August up to November 11th oh. or is it the um, ongoing collapse of German army morale I mean right. what is the and of course in terms of German army morale you and Alexander Watson have written the two best books on the subject matter, which explored in depth. I know you. The, my my second question would be, you and have certain differences with Watson. If you can go into what are that, what exactly those are? Yeah, sure. Well, let me start with the hundred days first of all. The hundred days was a phrase that started being bandied about not long after the First World War, actually, to describe the period from. Uh, the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918, which is which is the first major British counterstroke when the Allies go on to the offensive uh, in the late summer of 1918, uh, all the way to, so from the 8th of August through to the 11th of November. Now you don't have to be 
a crash heart mathematician to know that that's not 100 days. It's 95 or 96 days or whatever it is. But it, it was picked up as a, as a catchy phrase uh, that which emulated or, or referred to the last 100 days of Napoleon in 1815. You'll know that when... <clears throat> After Napoleon comes back, defeated, kicks out the French king, uh, or the French king flees to to, to Belgium. A uh, hundred days, theoretically, elapse between uh, the French king leaving Paris and the French king returning to Paris in the wake of the defeat of Napoleon in at the Battle of Waterloo. Actually, it's not a hundred days; it's a hundred and ten. But some courtier says, you know, the hundred days, hundred days without you have been miserable and lonely, or whatever, sire. In fact, one of those sorts of things. So that sort of the hundred days thing is to do with with Napoleon and, Brit- and British military historians and soldiers, I suppose, picked up on that in kind of some subliminal way to talk about the last hundred days of the campaign against Germany. Obviously, drawing an implicit equation with the last hundred days of the campaign against Napoleon. Uh, 103 years uh, previously, so that's 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 where it comes from. And obviously, that more recently, you know, you it, it's a very common trope, isn't it? You have the first hundred days of the Kennedy administration. We even had you know a lot of uh, press comment about the first hundred days of the Trump administration. No particular reason why it should be 100 days. It just is. Anyway, um, uh, now so so coming on to to what decides the hundred days. Well, as you, as you know, I've written. Uh, a, a much more academic book uh, about this as well, called Winning and Losing on the Western Front. And and the conclusion of which was that it was a combination of factors, I'm afraid. Uh, it's a boringly academic answer. Uh, that British tactics certainly played a role, but were not a sufficient condition for success. British operational art, management of logistics, and uh, sequencing of, of the battles that they fought, that kind of stuff. Uh, played a part, uh, that the uh, German army ran out of ideas defensively, how to, def- how to defeat uh, British tactics, uh, that certainly the German army ran out of manpower, um, that many of the problems that the German army experiences in the second half of 1918 are to do with uh, lack of manpower. They lose two million men in the course of 1918, uh, after all, 40% of the, of the field army. Um, and then, and then there is this question of morale, which, as you say, Alex Watson and myself have debated uh, a little bit. Um, we view it in slightly different ways. Um, it, he thinks that uh, the morale of the German army did collapse uh, essentially, and I kind of say, well, I'm not sure that it did so much as all that. Um, that there were still, although there were undoubtedly morale problems, and particularly in the last month of the war, once the Germans had asked for, to, for uh, asked President Wilson uh, to negotiate a, a, an armistice or a ceasefire or a peace, whatever whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the, certainly there is a, there is an impact on German morale uh, after that. But it, but even then, there are still an awful lot of German soldiers that are capable of putting up a very strong resistance. And so, so my view is that a lot of the, the very good evidence that Alex Watson brings up in terms of the numbers of prisoners that are captured, which suddenly goes through the roof in 1918, <clears throat> during the 100 days. So, you know, until then, the British have not been able to, or the Allies have not been able to capture very many German prisoners at all. Suddenly in 1918, they're, they're, they're rounding them up in droves. 
He takes that as evidence of a collapse in morale. There is something to that. I'm not denying it. But I also think that it's a lot to do with the nature of the war, where it's got more mobile, and it's just simply easier to, for units to get cut off, surrounded, know that no one's coming to help them, uh, and as a result are forced to surrender. Very much like you see actually in the spring of 1918, and indeed as you see in Northwest Europe uh, in 1944. Um, I've just been reading Anthony Beaver's new book about the Battle of Arnhem, for example, and where, where the British Airborne Division that is isolated at Arnhem suffers very heavy casualties, many of whom are unwounded prisoners going into the bag because their, their unit just gets overrun in the confusion of the fighting. Uh, and they're faced with effectively committing suicide by continuing to fight when they're greatly surrounded and outnumbered or putting their hands up. And not unreasonably, to a, non, to a non-soldier anyway, they put their hands up. Um, so I think that I think that explains a lot of the evidence that that, uh, that Alexander um, uh, talks about. However, he's an extremely good historian, and we have had many a beer and uh, discussed this at great length and agreed to differ. <laughs> uh, good show. Um, getting back to Ruprecht, uh, how would you rate him in terms of the politics of war, in terms of being a politician? As an achiever, as a politician, I don't think he's very good, Um, largely because he has no official political role, he's only the heir to the throne, he's not the king, and he has a very poor relationship with his father, the king, and everyone knows he has a very poor relationship with him, so he has very little influence over uh, the king of Bavaria, who, who, who does have a level of power in the sense that if the king of Bavaria goes to the Kaiser and, and argues something, there is a chance that he will be listened to. Um, as, a, as an observer and a behind-the-scenes influencer of politics, well, I think, you, I think you have to... So I think there are three roles you have to, you have to separate out. Achiever, close to, close to you know, one out of ten. Uh, behind-the-scenes influencer, slightly more successful... Um, he, he, he is involved, for instance, in the cabal uh, which tries to get rid of Falkenhayn uh, in, at the end of 1914. Uh, uh, he allies with Hindenburg and Ludendorff, in fact, and, and that then comes back to do him some good at the, end of, in the middle of 1916 when Hindenburg and Ludendorff take over the command of the German army. Uh, he is uh, he sees the way, he's a very astute observer, I think, of the, of the big picture. He sees, as I've already discussed, the fact that Germany's going to, in a problematic situation earlier than most, and is, but is un, unable to change, to help her change course. And, and he starts to build alliances with more liberal members of the political world such as Prince Max of Baden, who eventually becomes the German Chancellor in October 1918. Um, but I think even then, he, although he sees the international situation quite clearly, he's not as good on, on the domestic side, and he underestimates the strength of feeling, the danger of revolution, and the possibility that revolution, when it, if it comes, will be absolutely all-encompassing, which, of course, is how it turns out to be. I don't think he... He sees the need for liberalisation, but but doesn't see the urgency 
uh, of getting it done uh, quite as quickly as it as it needed as it arguably needed to, to be done if any kind of revolution were to be forestalled, if that had been possible. If you see what I mean? Yes. Uh, was uh, Graf Hertling? I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was his was he um, uh, Crown Prince Rupert's nominee? Uh, Graf Hertling had been the Bavarian Prime Minister uh, and was made Chancellor um, halfway through the war. Um, frankly, set up as a patsy by Ludendorff and Hindenburg as someone they could blame if things went wrong. Uh, it wasn't really um, Ruprecht's decision. Ruprecht welcomed the, the, the choice initially uh, because he was Bavarian and he wanted to have Bavarians in positions of power, but he didn't see how played out Hertling was. Uh, he was an old man and and, and out of his depth. Um, uh, so I think he was. I think Hertling was was fitted up basically by the Prussians rather than uh, no, than that marking a, a political success for Ruprecht. Now, in the at the end, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of the book, you do uh, an unusual term for historian, particularly a his, military historian, which is to go a little bit of epistemology of object versus subject, a.k.a. was Crown Prince Ruprecht um, <clears throat> uh, object of history or subject? Uh, and you, you come down firmly on the fact that uh, uh, he was a subject, that uh, yeah. in, in essence he made his own destiny yeah. to some extent. Can you go into why, in terms of, because I was a little bit, um, it's a little bit unusual, again, for, uh, not only for a historian, but particularly for a military historian, to go mm. into something which is more about epistemology than uh, military tactics. <laughs> I see. Well, <clears throat> I suppose it, it came about for two reasons. One was that one of the uh, readers of the manuscript suggested that there was stuff to talk about there, which I hadn't done in the original version, so that was you know, a helpful piece of input. But but also, and more to it, was that when I had started, when I started this project, I very much saw the attraction of, uh, one of the reasons, the things that attracted me to Ruprecht was this sense of him as this sort of tragic, almost Ruritanian sort of Central European prince who, who gets washed over by the forces of modernity in the early 20th century. Um, you know, as being, if you like, a victim of history rather than an actor uh, within it. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought that that kind of fits within the way we see the First World War generation more generally, because we tend to see them as, as victims. I think I quote the line from Wilfred Owen about the um, uh, these who die as cattle, you know, the, the soldiers marching up to the front, are, are, are going there to be slaughtered like cattle, they're, they're passive victims of the war rather than actors in it. Now, you don't have to read many First World War memoirs, unless they're written by poets, uh, in, before you find out that those soldiers, okay, they may have had a worm's eye view of the war, but that they certainly didn't see themselves as victims. They, they thought that they had they had either volunteered or been conscripted. But but in a, in any case, they saw themselves as you know, as independent people living their lives, just in a in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have chosen, but nonetheless one that they had where they had they tried to exert some influence and control over their surroundings. And and the more I read about Ruprecht. And the more I read Ruprecht's stuff, the more I felt that applied to him in, in spades. 
Okay, he's obviously not an archetypal frontline soldier. He's a he's a general. He's got all kinds of you know, symbols of authority and um, and and in, in real ways can affect the environment that surrounds him. But that, that clearly, he's a proud man who would have been horrified, you know, if we had if I had written a book uh, describing him as a victim. And so I suppose I, I sort of put those two thoughts together and thought that. You know, although, as I say, in no sense can you view him as really representative of the, of the soldier of the First World War because he's because of his status. <clears throat> but nonetheless, it just maybe gives us a little pause for thought about this generation and how we consider them and whether they would like to have been viewed with sympathy rather than empathy, I suppose. Can you tell the audience what is your next research project? Uh well, I'm just starting it now. Uh, uh, I'm very much looking forward to getting into it. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to look at uh, money in wartime, uh, not not as not as an economic history, uh, but a sort of cultural and social uh, look at how money behaves in wartime and what that tells us about all sorts of interesting things. So, what it tells us about trust within society and uh, legitimacy and all these kind of uh, these kind of issues. You know, we tend to take money for granted, don't we, in peacetime? It's just something you've either got or you haven't. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the way you use it every day, you just take it for granted. But in wartime, that's not always possible, uh, and it, it, it mutates. It, different kind, different things can become money: cigarettes or nylons, for, for example, at various points. Um, can be more valuable. The way we keep score on people, as it were, within society changes. How much money they have may be less important in wartime than in other, other periods, and so on. These kind of questions, that's what I want to explore. Now, if you wanted the reader to take one thing away from this book, what would it be? That's a very good question. I think it's... I think it would be that there's always two sides to every story. And that applies double when it comes to war. And until we have read the story of a war or a battle from both sides, then I really think we find it hard to understand it properly. Oh, with that um, observation, uh, allow me to thank you very much, Professor Boff, for speaking to us today. I've been speaking to Professor Jonathan Boff about his new book, Haig's Enemy, Crown Prince Ruprecht, and Germany's War in the Western Front. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed it.